0: Well, very good morning again. Um, I, I do hope that everyone here is well. will not you take your Bibles and turn to John 3, verse 16 so long? Uh, you might have picked it up from the reading, but John three sixteen. In God's Word, we see again and again a, a call for us as Christians to meditate. Not the yoga kind, sitting on the floor saying, oh, but... Not the emptying our minds kind, but really the Christian kind. uh, The kind where we take God's word and we process it, we think about it, we internalize it, we we look through it and we take it and we make it our own. This passage truly is one of those. One of those that that we are called to as Christians to take, to hear, to process, to meditate on. Billy Graham says this about John 3.16. When we come to this passage, we have, the es- we have the essence of the gospel in one verse. It is the heart of the Bible. It is the heart of the Christian message. It is the heart of the great news that Jesus came to bring to the world. And so let's read it together. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So as we draw nearer to Christmas, there's one question which I would like us to ask this morning. What love is this that God has shown in sending us Jesus? What love is this that God has shown in sending us his son? And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I just want to reiterate again one. We're glad you're here. We love you and we hope you feel welcome. But the question which I'd like you to think about this morning is what is the reason that is stopping you from believing in Jesus? What's keeping you back from Jesus as your Lord? Now, at the end of the sermon, we'll look at exactly what Jesus says about that, and I think it's truly eye-opening, and I trust that when we get there throughout the sermon, that God will meet us where we are, both Christian and if you are here this morning, and you do not believe what we believe as Christians. Uh, then I trust that truly this passage will be a blessing to you too. Won't you join me as we commit ourselves to God in prayer? Our gracious and loving Lord, you know the desires of our hearts. Lord, you know us and still you love us. Lord, you know the desire of my heart this morning for this time in your word. And I pray, Lord, that you would please still my own anxious heart. Lord, would you come and meet with us? Would you speak to us through your word? Lord, we long to meet with you. We long to have intimate communion and fellowship with you. We want to know, Lord, that at this time, the Christmas trees and the presents and the good food and all of that is not all that there is. We want to know, Lord, that for those who are hurting and those who are wrestling, where Christmas is a difficult time, that this is not all that there is. Lord, please, would you meet us? Would you, by your Spirit, speak to us and plant your word down deep in our hearts? Would you comfort us, Lord? Would you engage our hearts? Would you challenge our thinking? Lord, so that we might know you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So keep that question in mind this morning. What love is this that God has shown us in the sending of his Son? And Jesus in John 3.16, he highlights it up front. The first kind of love really is simple. It's a proactive and a self-sacrificial love. It's a proactive and self-sacrificial love. And we would do well to remember the context of the conversation that Jesus is having with Nicodemus. Nicodemus being a man of the Pharisees, a religious leader, he comes to Jesus at night and he wants to have a conversation about the kingdom of God. Jesus says to Nicodemus up front, right in the beginning, and I think Jesus probably would have failed your average Bible college evangelism course because he starts with, you must be born again. And we know this from the rest of Jesus' ministry, that this is because every single person, and Nicodemus who is hearing this knows this well, every single one of us is completely stained by sin. We're reminded in God's word that we've fallen short of God's glory and his standard. But not just fallen short, we've joined a rebel army against God, and we are warring actively against him. And it's why Paul tells us in Romans 6.23 that the wages that you and I have paid and will now earn the work that we have done, and the just work that comes to us from God, our own punishment is death. As a religious leader, Nicodemus understands this well. If we look slightly back in our Bibles in John chapter 2, we'll see that Nicodemus would have been involved in the Jewish celebration of the Passover feast, in which the Jews had two realities in mind. One, God's goodness in sparing his people. Two, God's incredibly severe hand against the Egyptians who rebelled against him. I don't think the same can be said of us today, however. Nicodemus understands our sinfulness, and I think in today's day and age, most people don't. I don't think most people would identify themselves as sinful people. I don't think that we would identify ourselves or even others a lot of the time as bad people. In essence, we kind of think of ourselves more as projects than as wrecks. There's a series that I enjoy watching on Netflix called Gotham Cars, and it's this group of mechanics and uh, and sort of repairmen, and they go to these dump sites where they find cars that have been left out in the elements. And these cars are are chipped up and they are are, are rusted. They're all broken down. And these guys go and they take these cars. They tow them out, often in a humorous way, adding more dents and dings along the way. And these cars go to the garage where they use a plethora of different tools and devices and techniques to restore these cars. And by the end, they take something which they paid $1,000 for and they sell it for hundreds of thousands, if not millions of rounds. And I think most people view themselves a little bit like that. I think we mostly view ourselves as damaged. We view ourselves as you know, someone who's maybe missing some paint, some chips along the way. Maybe we hit some of the potholes on CR SWAT and we, we are a little bit hurt. Maybe a few of us just need a little bit of a tweak or a good service. But beneath the surface lies a gem, if only people would know. Can I suggest that Nicodemus is too wise to fall into the naivety of our modern-day view of ourselves? But just because Nicodemus understands our sinfulness doesn't mean that he understands Jesus. You can imagine Nicodemus running through his Bible college class notes in his mind when talking to Jesus. The lectures that he would have had while learning about the sacrificial system in Leviticus. Or in seeing how, on the one day of the year of Yom Kippur, where the priest, the high priest, would go and make atonement for the nation of Israel. And this would have been Nicodemus' filter. This would have been what he would have lived with. This would have been normal to him. But what he missed is that this whole system, all of these thoughts, everything around the sacrificial system, everything around our sinfulness, as Paul says, is just a guardian until Christ came. This sacrificial system was just a shadow. It was meant to be pointing forward. And Jesus is trying to help Nicodemus see this. And for some including nicodemus maybe some even here this morning you might not yet see this but can i say this it is very good news if you and i were left to our own devices we would ruin everything and if we look at the world we live in i think we see that we do our sin stained hands mar pretty much everything in our lives we mess up relationships we don't manage things well Even this morning in our tithes and offering, how many of us have sometimes felt guilty about whether or not we give enough and we we eat up our own consciences because we're not sure if we're even good stewards? But never mind our own sin in ourselves. Our sin also bubbles over and affects others around us. See, this is why the sending of Jesus is such good news. This is why God's sending of Jesus is such an incredible show of love because God takes the sacrificial system which Nicodemus knows of which is meant to be awful and bloody and gruesome and ugly, something which represents your and my sin and something which shows the great need and the cost of forgiveness. And God tells Nicodemus through Jesus that that need is met in one person. Friends, shouldn't we praise God? Shouldn't we praise God that he didn't wait for us to fix ourselves? Shouldn't we praise God that he didn't wait for you and I to come up with a way to enter the kingdom of heaven? Rather, as Paul writes in Romans 5 verse 8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, the love of God in sending Jesus is a sacrificial love, and we see that. But the love of God in sending Jesus is also a proactive love. We see in the Bible a few examples of God's people caught up. they, they stuck. they, they come completely consumed by something. Often they're even enslaved. And at the same time, we see that it's only when they realize that God is the only true hope of their lives, that God can be their only true Savior, that they call out to God. It is only then that they are released. We see this with Israel in Egypt. We even see it with Jonah in the giant fish. It is when people come to understand that God is their only hope, that they cry out that salvation belongs to our God. In the same way, we must understand that Israel at this time is waiting for that, the salvation of God. They're waiting for a Messiah. They're waiting for the promise of God to be fulfilled. And we know this because of the accounts of Simeon and Anna. If we turn our minds back, Simeon and Anna are two faithful Jews who are, are living at and have dedicated their lives to working and service in the temple. And they're waiting. They're waiting for the promise. They're waiting for God's Messiah. They're waiting for the Christ. But as much as there were a few faithful people like Simeon and Anna, the world then, very much like the world today, was not looking for a Christ, was not looking for a Messiah. God did not send Jesus because people were pleading with him for a Messiah. When God sends Jesus, he sends him to a people who would reject him. He sends him to a people who would turn their backs on him, people like the Pharisees and people like Nicodemus, who Jesus is talking to. And so in a very real way, this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus is a wonderful picture of today's world. If you look around you, don't we see that people are asking and pleading and searching for meaning and identity and security in the future in absolutely everything they can get their hands on? In money and sex and possessions and everything else, people are looking for an opportunity to find security, all while rejecting Jesus, who said he came to set the captives free. So if you're not a Christian here this morning, can I ask you, can I plead with you, do you see that God did not wait for you to fix yourself? Do you see that God did not wait for you to cry out? Do you see that God did not wait for you to make yourself lovable and savable? God sent his son while you were still dead in sin. So my question is this, will you believe in him? Will you trust in a God who doesn't wait for you to do the first thing, who doesn't wait for you to take the first step? Will you trust in a God who loved you first? So the first kind of love which Jesus highlights in John 3.16 is this proactive and sacrificial love. And that leads us to the second love which God has shown in sending Jesus, which is a personal and a redemptive love. Jesus says that whoever believes in me will have eternal life. Now, it's not that the translation is wrong, but we can read the Greek a little bit more literally where it says, all the believing ones will have eternal life. In other words, a defined group of people, a very definite people. So when Jesus says that God gave his one and only son, we can be sure that God gave him. He actually gave him to his people. He didn't leave Jesus on earth as an orphan savior. He gave Jesus to his people. But what does that actually mean? What does it mean that Jesus was given? Well, the Bible describes you and I as unable to enter the kingdom of God on our own. This is why Jesus says we must be born again. We're reminded in Ephesians 2 verse 1 where we're told that we are dead in our sin, morally unable to save ourselves. But God, because he loves us, through the preaching of the gospel, the gospel which is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, through the work of the Spirit as he awakens our hearts and plants his word down deep within us, as he takes us from death to life and awakens us and takes us from darkness to light, as the Spirit moves within us and causes us to become alive and through the Father's electing love. This love of Jesus will be personally known by many. Jesus says in John 10, verse 14 to 16, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep which are not of this fold, and I must bring them in also, and they will listen to my voice. Notice that Jesus doesn't say that they become his sheep by listening. Jesus says they are known by him, and therefore they come to him. Jesus says that he knows his sheep, not because he has learned about them, but because they are his. He knows them as he knows the Father because they are his sheep. And so, if you're a Christian here today, if you have believed upon Jesus Christ, you can take comfort because you are known by Jesus. And being known by Jesus means that you are perfectly loved. Perfectly worked together by the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. All of God, the Father, Son, and the Spirit, coming together to work for your good. Friends, this is very good news. What love is this that God would look upon you and me in our sin and make pouring out His love for us His mission? What love is this that God chooses to display His glory amongst the world through us? Tim Keller highlights this well. He says, To be loved but not known is lovely but superficial. To be known but not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is what it's like to be loved by God. See, because Jesus knows his sheep personally, he is sent to save them. God sends Jesus. He gives him to us, to redeem us, to call us by name. And Jesus says in verse 17, straight after our passage, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Friends, it is because God loves you that Jesus came to save. It is because God loves you that Jesus came to redeem you. It is because of God's love that he sent his son. As Jesus says in Mark 10, verse 45, the only way that you and I can enter the kingdom of heaven, the only way that we can know that we can be saved, the only hope that we have of being born again is because Jesus gave himself as a ransom for us. What love is this? What love is this? Only our Lord Jesus Christ. This leads us to our third kind of love, which Jesus highlights in God sending His one and only Son, which is an eternal and a comprehensive love. A survey was run many years ago in which people were asked the three greatest questions that they wrestle with, and they collated all the information and they came up with this list Firstly, who am I? Secondly, why am I here? And thirdly, what happens when I die? Who am I, why am I here, and what happens when I die? In other words, people are wrestling primarily with identity, purpose, and security. People want to know that their life matters. People want to know that they are something, and people want to know that their life will continue after this one. And it's not said in Scripture, but I, and I hope that I'm not stretching this, but I, I do wonder if Nicodemus isn't wrestling with the same point. You can almost imagine his, his life around him, seeing the temple, seeing the sacrifices, seeing religiosity on display, and then seeing Jesus and hearing Jesus and watching Jesus. And I wonder to myself if, Jesus, if Nicodemus wasn't asking him these same questions. Everything Jesus was saying was going against his worldview, was going against his paradigm. He's pointing out my sin as a religious person. He's showing me that I can't even enter the kingdom of heaven as someone who is trying harder than the rest. He's pointing out my flaws in my thinking, and turns out he even has power, which can only come from God. He's everything my heart wants, but everything I want to reject. See, I think at the end of the day, every single one of us wants to be loved, right? But not just loved, we want to know that that love won't change. We want to be secure in love. We want to know that someone's love for us won't change when you and I change. We want to know that no matter what happens, even if we fail, that they won't fail. And so when Jesus spoke to Nicodemus about the love of God here in John 3.16, I think it would have hit Nicodemus like a pile of bricks. For God so loved the world. That he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish. Security, but have eternal life, security, definiteness, known. How on earth is that possible? Put yourself in Nicodemus' shoes. How can he know for sure? How can he know that believing is enough? He's grown up in a system where you believe, but you try. You try your best because your belief is not enough. You do your part. You engage with religion. You build up those around you towards trying their hardest too, because that's what it looks like. Well, according to Jesus, you and I and Nicodemus can know for ourselves that we will inherit eternal life not because of anything that we add, not because of anything we do, but because Jesus said that we don't bring anything to the table. Jesus says that all that is required for you and I to enter the kingdom of heaven is to be born again. And he says the way that that happens, in verse 14 and 15, we see this picture, is his death and his burial and his resurrection. In verse 14 and 15, Jesus says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. And here Jesus is using this picture of being lifted up as a foreshadowing of his crucifixion of a time to come where God will put Jesus on the cross, where Jesus will not only suffer the bloody and brutal cross, but also the weight of the sins of the world, so that you and I can say with confidence and proclaim these words, for I am sure, sure, that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things to come, nor things present, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Put yourself in Nicodemus' shoes for a moment. How can you be so sure? How can you trust these words? We have to understand that Nicodemus' whole situation, everything around his was dominated by a system. A system of the temple, of the law, of sacrifices. And John MacArthur describes it well. He, he says that the temple was so filled with blood during sacrificial times that it rose up to people's shins and ran out of the doors of the temples. That's a gruesome picture, but isn't it also a gruesome picture of people today who are trying and trying and trying The endless hamster wheel of good works, of trying to be a good person, trying to fix our mess-ups, trying to fix and mend the relationships that we've ruined, trying to undo our sin. Isn't that too a gruesome picture when we see the mental illness, when we see the depression, the brokenness, when we see people not able to feel loved because they're convinced that the only way that happens is through their own effort. If that is all you know, then what is powerful enough to suddenly convince Nicodemus, and even us this morning, that all of that can come to an end at once? We read in Hebrews 10, verse 11 to 14, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for a time when his enemies will be made a footstool for his feet, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being saved. There we see it, encapsulated in one idea, that Christ's death and his burial and his resurrection, Christ's death was where God on the cross put the sins of the world on Jesus as a substitute and he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Christ's burial itself fulfills Old Testament prophecy where the Messiah would spend three days in the depths of the earth and Christ's resurrection gives us confidence that he is a worthy and acceptable sacrifice for our sins, that he has defeated sin and death once and for all and has become our salvation as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, but in fact, not in opinion, not in hope, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. In other words, because of Jesus' resurrection, you and I can know that we will be resurrected. We can know that we will be in heaven. We can know that we will inherit eternal life. We can know that we can be born again because of Jesus. And so what can be powerful enough to end the bloodshed? What can be powerful enough to end our ongoing need of the world around us trying to run the hamster wheel of good works? Or Nicodemus would learn this only a few years later where Jesus' death, when he saw Jesus cry out on the cross, it is finished. Church, what love is this? What love is this that sends a perfect sacrifice to a rebel army to draw them in and give them life? What love is this that offers eternal hope which transcends life and death? What love is this that gives certainty to a hopeless people, not because of anything that they could do, but in fact because of everything that they've done? This is the love of God for his people. This is an eternal and a comprehensive love. And so what do we do with this love? Well, Christmas time is one of those seasons where everything seems to be defaulted towards happiness. But if we're honest, I think Christmas is an incredibly difficult and often lonely time for many people. And even if we're in that difficult space, the world around us tries to be uplifting and encouraging and warm and blessings. You know, we give gifts, we sing songs, we eat good food, we, we hang out with people. But we want to know that that's not all that Christmas is. And praise God that that's not. Praise God that Christmas is about remembering with thanksgiving the goodness of God in sending us his one and only son. And it makes sense then that the only appropriate answer, the only appropriate response for you and I when we think about Christmas, when we think about Jesus coming, when we think about God's love for us is to respond with thanksgiving. And so just three ways this is by no means an exhaustive list but three ways which I think this passage highlights for us to be thankful is to be thankful first of all just for God's love. If nothing else this passage highlights the radical way in which God would approach his people because he because we needed a radical savior. The enormous weight which is put upon us is to be able to see not to try to believe upon Jesus Christ because he is a worthy savior or because of his love. See, you and I, when we're thankful for God's love, we point ourselves and our hearts to the very core of the gospel. We can be thankful for much which God gives us. We can be thankful for our possessions. We can be thankful for family. We can be thankful for many things, and there's nothing wrong with that. But when we're thankful for God's love, that filters down through everything. Secondly, we should be thankful that salvation is by faith alone. Jesus says to Nicodemus, a religious leader, the king of the tryhards, stop trying, believe. Should we not be so thankful that salvation is by faith alone? Should we not be so thankful that where you and I would mess up enough that if we could lose our salvation, we would, and if we could earn it, we couldn't, that Jesus completely splits that apart and he says, believe. Believe. That we should be thankful that salvation is by faith alone because the works that you and I can conjure up are still sin-stained works. At best, they are filthy rags in the face of our loving and holy God. We should also be thankful for God's generosity. As often as you can, reflect this Christmas season on the generosity of God in sending his son. He didn't send a friend. He didn't send an angel. He didn't send someone who would come and send a message. He sent us his son. He gave us his son. He sent his one and only son. He sent us his begotten son. He sent us his son. And so in a sense, let all of your rejections of him throughout your sinfulness, let all of your brokenness before him, before him, propel you to see that love more clearly, propel you to him, to see his generosity. In the same way, people who are sick are very glad for a cure. And so recognize your sickness often so that Jesus' beauty looks more beautiful. At the beginning of our time, I asked, I suggested that if anyone here that isn't a Christian should ask themselves, what is it exactly that's stopping you from believing in Jesus? Or look forward with me in your Bibles to verse 20 and verse 21, also of John chapter 3. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Do you notice what Jesus says? The reason that anyone doesn't want to come to him isn't really fundamentally because there's a good reason not to. It's because we don't want the sinfulness of our hearts exposed. We don't want to be vulnerable. We don't want to have to let go of the fact that what we're doing is bad, is evil, is not enough. We don't want to meet the person of Christ who promises love because he also promises that he knows us. That quote from Tim Keller said it well, to be known but not loved is our greatest fear. If this is you this morning, I know the fear of being completely known is immense, but you can rest in the words of Jesus, that Jesus who knows you through and through, that all, everyone, all sinners, every broken person, the worst of the worst, the too far gone, all who believe in him will have eternal life. No matter how far gone you think you are, you can be forgiven if you trust in Jesus. No matter how sinful you are, if you trust in Jesus to forgive you of your sins, he will do so. We're reminded in Romans 10 verse 10 that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so if you want to do that, if you are here this morning and you're not a Christian, can I encourage you to be asking this of yourself, what is really getting in the way of you trusting in Christ? It's not his love. It's not that he knows you and won't accept you. What's really getting in the way? I think that there's probably less than you think. And so my prayer for you this morning, and I can say this on behalf of all the elders and the pastors and every Christian in this church, our prayer for you is that you would come to know this Christmas season the love of God in the sending of his one and only son. So if you would like to speak about that, if you have any questions, I'm sure any of the elders would be happy to answer those. Or if you're sitting near anyone who's a Christian, ask them after the service if you're not. How do I trust in Christ? And I'm sure they'd be happy to speak to you. I'll be waiting up front. If any of the elders are here as well, that would be great. Um, But let's just commit our time to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Our gracious and loving Lord, you are worthy of all of our praise. Lord, as we see in your word, and even as we have seen now again, that the love which you have poured out for us in your Son is so immense, Thank you so much, Lord, for sending your Son. Thank you for all this love that you have shown us. Thank you for this comprehensive and eternal love which you have shown us. A love for a dirty, sinful people, Lord, who you love. Lord, there is nothing that we can do to ever thank you enough. But we do. We thank you for sending our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the love which you lavish upon us in your son. We thank you, Lord, that when you look down and you see our brokenness, Lord, you sent us your savior. You sent us Christ, your one and only son, to be our savior, Lord, because we could not be our own. Thank you, Lord, for your love. Lord, as we go from here today, would you please remind us of your love? as we look around us at the world and how it celebrates Christmas, would every part of every joy which is misplaced, Lord, be redirected in our hearts? Would we not be so concerned with people who are not Christians doing unchristian things? And rather, Lord, look at the King of kings and the Lord of lords who sent down his one and only son that we would have the true gift, the gift of salvation. Thank you, Lord, for your son. Thank you that we can know him. And Lord, please, would you take Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus and plant it down within our hearts, Lord, that we too would remember that if we are not yet born again, Lord, we are outside of that love. We are experiencing darkness. We are, in a sense, condemned already because we're rejecting the light. And so, Lord, would you please call us to yourself. Would you save some even this morning, Lord? Would you draw your sheep to yourself? They will hear your voice. And so we can have confidence, Lord, that the gospel is your power unto salvation. Thank you, Lord, for your love. Thank you for our time together, Lord. Thank you for your word. Would you please, by your spirit, plant it down deep within our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.